Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PNL podcast and founder of the new PNL Brand Purpose Institute, where we work with business leaders, employees, and entrepreneurs just like you and empower them to build brands with purpose on purpose. So if you have a question about how to build more engaged, creative, collaborative cultures and leaders, then we'd love to chat. Just get in touch at principlesandleadership.com. This week, our shout out goes out to Chile, another one of the 80 plus countries the new PNL is listened to in. A massive thank you to all our Chilean listeners for your ongoing support and your belief in our global movement for more principled leadership and more purpose-led business. You are an important part of this movement. And if you'd like to help us keep it growing, I encourage you to send a link or a recommendation to your colleagues, your managers, your business networks right across Chile. Let's keep the global movement growing. This week, we speak to Dr. Dennis Coe, a digital transformation expert, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Driving Digital Transformation. Dennis was group head of Tomorrow Digital Group, UOB's millennial digital bank in Singapore. And while he was there, he was responsible for the strategy, growth, and delivery of Tomorrow Digital Bank, which won the global finance's most innovative digital bank at the Asia Pacific Awards in 2019. And on the back of the huge success of the Tomorrow Digital Bank, Dennis wrote Driving Digital Transformation, Lessons from Building the First ASEAN Digital Bank. So Dennis, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Thank you. Perhaps we can start the discussion um, with you giving listeners a, a quick overview of who you are, what you do, and who you do it for. Sure. Um, well, my name is uh, Dennis, Dennis Koo. Uh, I've spent um, 30 years uh, in a mix of IT and banking, uh, which I think set me up uh, very well to uh, build a new digital bank uh, in Southeast Asia in 2017. Uh, and I've encapsulated all my learnings uh, in the three years I spent building the digital bank in Thailand and in Indonesia. And I've encapsulated it uh, in a book called uh, Driving Digital Transformation, which I believe, Paul, uh, you've recently read. I have, yes. Uh, yes. And um, yeah, so uh, um, it's my honor and pleasure to be able to share some of my learnings with your listeners today. The, the term digital transformation, which forms, as you say, part of the, the title of your book, Driving Digital Transformation, it has in some regards become as ambiguous as it's become more ubiquitous. So everyone's talking about digital transformation, but there are just about as many definitions as there are conversations. So to help listeners set the context for our discussion today, how, how do you define digital transformation? Well, the interesting thing, uh, Paul, is that first, uh, I, I think there's no such thing as digital transformation. I mean, if you consider just the very simple stuff, right, you've got some stuff that are on forms and you just want to convert it to, you know, electronic, then you could say that, well, in converting them from forms to digital, that's a form of digital transformation. But other than those very uh, simple examples, mostly everything, and, and I would then say that everything that involves incumbent companies of any size, uh, the phrase really misnomer because you, you can't have change happen just because you're introducing digital. Yes. Most of the time, and most experts who have actually done digital transformation themselves, uh, like me, would, uh, would I think definitely agree that it's a combination of people, 
uh, lots and lots of process detail and then technology and wrapping those together and the complexities that come around it. Uh, that's what really transformation is about. So it's really business transformation, leveraging people, uh, leveraging process. And of course, today you can't escape that anything that you're going to do in transformation, you're going to involve technology and digital. So it's really a misnomer, but you know, it's, it's become popular language. Yes. So uh, I use that in my book, even though you know, I would say that anything that is not trivial, the term doesn't really apply. So do you think some businesses are confusing either accidentally or purposefully digital transformation with effectively technology upgrades or technology technological iteration rather than transformation, if you like? Yes, I, I think today it can be very confusing for someone um, you know, who's perhaps spent 30 years climbing up the uh, corporate ladder and then suddenly find themselves at the top and if they're given the role to transform, it can be very, very confusing. Firstly, um, sometimes incumbent companies will compare themselves to startups. And they're really not startups because they've got a lot of legacy infrastructure, paradigms, habits that people have you know, uh, become used to. Obviously the bureaucracy, the fight for resources, uh, you know, that, that obviously goes on internally within any company. Yes. So those really prevent them from becoming a startup. It's not that they can't learn uh, some of the ways of working, you know, uh, that have been introduced by startups like design thinking yeah. and learning to be agile. But I think we need to separate the methodologies you learn from the context that you operate in. Agreed. And the context you operate in is really not as a startup. So it can be very challenging because you've got to understand so many things. You really got to be very broad in order to make a transformation happen because it involves so many different components of an incumbent company. And if you've really risen uh, and really grown in one or two areas in the company, you find actually uh, it can be very disorientating. Yes. Uh, of course, it can also be a great learning process. Uh, you know, and, and you know, even with my background in technology and I had done every single uh product role uh, in the retail bank before uh, you know, leading a major uh, tra digital transformation, major business mm -hmm. transformation and building a digital bank. It was uh, probably the most complex uh, uh, assignment of my 32-year uh, career. Mm -hmm. As you stated earlier, with the book Driving Digital um, Transformation, it's based on your own experience of taking a traditional bank, uh, UOB in Singapore, yes. and yes. using it as a platform to create the successful, pronounced tomorrow, the TMRW, Digital Bank in Thailand and Indonesia. It'd be great to understand not just the process of how you started to create that digital bank, but what framed its thinking that led to its success. Because so much of the not just the financial services sector, but other industries, disruption comes from a way of thinking rather than just a process. Well, I think the starting point is really uh, the future, right? How will banking be done in the future? And therefore, how should you respond? Uh, and I think that element also has two facets uh, for UOB back in 2017. Uh, in its uh, strongholds, for example, in Singapore, it was potentially more defensive in nature. Uh, 
mm -hmm. for its uh, areas where it wanted to grow uh, significantly uh, outside of the strongholds and where it had uh, purchased uh, banks uh, and 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 assimilated and grown over time, uh, it was a way to expand uh, in a different way, right? Because in the past, uh, as with other banks, uh, that growth was basically a branch, uh, an infrastructure uh, led uh, growth from a channel perspective, and it was physically setting up branches, hiring more uh, people mm -hmm. to support the customers that those uh, branches would bring. And that has changed. So that, that was the rationale. And uh, it was really uh, a blank uh, sheet of paper. And I think the, the, the most probably challenging part initially was resisting the temptation to just do something. Yes. Uh, and I, I was uh, given very good advice by uh, the um, group CEO uh, and uh, he told me uh, that you know we're not going to be the first uh, to do a digital bank so take the time to think through and design it and build it properly and I think that's really in contrast with sometimes many uh, companies that are rushing to do something and I would advocate that you know, for incumbent companies, I would say that the analogy is more like building a building. Yes. I mean, nobody builds a building and just rushes and gets a builder to just build it, right? Because you know you, you end up to be a mess. Yeah. Because you've got different uh, groups that are responsible for different uh, parts of the design of the build. So you've got the architect that really understands, you know, the how you want to work, live, and play, how the tenants want to work, live, and play, and creates the building based on their input. And then you've got the civil engineer that got to make sure that the building can stand on its own and structurally sound. And of course, you have the builder. And I think in, in any uh, organization that's transforming, you've also got these three units within the company. And therefore, uh, thinking it through, uh, you know, very clear on what is it you want to achieve, uh, how are you going to differentiate, uh, very importantly, what value are you going to bring for the customer? Mm -hmm. And because it's an end condition, right? What value are you going to bring for the customer and how are you going to make money? Yeah. Align with your risk appetite, right? Um, yes. Because if your risk appetite is uh, very low, then you might say, okay, I want to make money quickly, but is that possible, right? And if that's not possible, then when you try and put the value proposition, the business model together, then it doesn't gel. And if it doesn't gel and you try to build something quickly, then the whole thing just doesn't work and it gets written off. So I'm a big believer after my experience in, in a holistic approach, right? And holistic approach takes time, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're going to rush through it, then you, you, you can't do it holistically. So I think one of the uh, best decisions was that first nine, 10 months where we really spent a lot of time thinking through the design and getting the fundamentals right. After all, you know, for your listeners out there, right? Once you've decided where the staircase is, where the toilets are, where the uh, electrical systems run in a building, it's very hard to change it later. Yes. You're basically going to hack out the whole thing, right? And, and I think that analogy is very apt for anyone that, you know, is about to uh, 
uh, undertake a major transformation in an incumbent organizational size. So you've made some really interesting points there. I'd like to explore a little bit more. And you started with saying that the bank in Singapore may have been sort of more defensive in nature as a traditional bank is, and as many traditional banks are. And over the last 15 years, two decades, we've seen you know, many traditional banking organizations launching more agile and innovative offerings and businesses. And a lot of these falter or fall within a, within a few years, despite enormous resources and infrastructure behind them. And you give examples in your book of JP Morgan and, and RBS as two examples. Yes. Why is this? Is it, a, is it a failure of leadership? Is it because you come from a defensive position? Is it because it comes from one of fear and panic that you have to do something? Is it misaligned expectations? Why do, why do these banks, these new digital banks that are so well-resourced fall or falter in those first few years? Well, I think it's a combination of many things, right? And it goes back to whether you have looked at the whole thing holistically, because there are many different uh, dimensions and elements you need to get right. So in my book, I talk about the fact that first, you've got to look at the customer and have a very strong value proposition. And um, that that is, I think, in banking, uh, sometimes not so obvious because the traditional school of thought is all about product. Mm-hmm. And how can you keep enhancing the product, right? So, uh, and the measurements and the way the business is done as well may not allow you to really focus on the end-to-end experience. Yes. And if you look at end-to-end experience, right, and this is particularly apt in uh, very competitive industries uh, that are, uh, you know, very, in a way, very commoditized, right? There is no one big thing you can do to gain customers, right? The technology is not moving at a rate where, you know, like, for example, uh, in material science, right, right now, or in uh, DNA, uh, you witness how, uh, you know, the COVID uh, vaccines have been produced. It's unprecedented. So those technologies are not moving very quickly. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you're not going to find a breakthrough that will allow one or two things to attract everybody to your new proposition. Yes. Neither is this business model uh, changing that fast. In, in fact, a, a digital bank is not a business model innovation because you make money the same way through yes. the difference of what you, uh, you know, give depositors in terms of interest and what you charge uh, the people who borrow. So you you make you know from fees and that spread, and and so if that hasn't changed, therefore it's not a business model innovation. Your technology underpinning the business is not moving very fast. Therefore, it is quite right to surmise that in a lot of these industries that have these characteristics, you're not going to find one thing. Yeah. It's going to revolutionize your transformation. Therefore, you may have to work on 20, 30 things. At, at, at the foundational layer, you're really thinking through all the things that customers don't like about yeah. the experience. In fact, they may not like it, but they may not complain. They, they bear with it, right? because it's an inconvenience. It's not so bad that you're going to stop using it, right? And therefore, uh, stringing that together and getting everything aligned actually takes a a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort. And you you need to have the right DNA to do that, right? Mm -hmm. You need to be very particular and fussy about the small details. And I would say that if you don't have that kind of DNA, then you, you can't succeed. Mm-hmm. Because then you you tend to delegate 
uh, all these details, right? And a lot of it is about reviewing the process, asking why it's done this way. And when you delegate it to a low enough level, unfortunately, because banking is a, a, a business where you need to manage risk. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of departments within a bank, rightly so, that are there to manage risk. And in risk management, you want to avoid unnecessary change. Yeah. And therefore, if you don't get those things right, as you delegate this to lower levels, they find lots of obstacles and they pivot to yes. avoid those obstacles. So what you end up with is one big mess in terms <laughs> of the experience. So something as simple as that, we're not even talking about more sophisticated things like how do you provide great service with technology, how you use data yeah. right, to prevent problems. We're not even talking about that. We're just talking about the basics of getting a really good experience done up, right? Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. It's very hard. You, you so are... therefore, when you when when I went through, uh, you know, uh, ref reflecting it post my experience and writing, but it became very obvious why so many transformations fail. Yeah, because the amount of effort, detail, commitment, passion you need to put into it is simply overwhelming. Yes. and then you also have the fact that you need to look at it holistically. So the the odds are actually very much against yeah. someone succeeding in an incumbent company of size. You were or are um, ASEAN's first digital bank. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the term ASEAN, it's the Association of South Southeast Asian Nations. Um, by its nature, a digital challenger bank has technical and technological innovation hardwired into it. But the people it serves, its customers, are naturally the heart of the process. That's who you're trying to attract yeah. and who you're trying to serve. And ASEAN, by its definition, is a is a vast collection of people and cultures and the way you do business and relationships are developed and you have incredible wealth and, and relative economic development and so on. And I know you originally launched into Indonesia and Thailand. So how do you build a, a digital bank where the transaction, by definition, is largely faceless and digitally led? But how do you build a digital bank in a country where the or in the region where the countries and the experiences and the cultural norms are, are so vast and so dramatically different. How do you build one product for a diverse audience, if you like? Yeah, that's extremely challenging. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit easier in Europe with the EU. Mm -hmm. You have more commonality. I mean, there are still different languages. There's obviously still different uh, cultural norms and approaches, but there's a little bit more commonality uh, that has come about. In in ASEAN, I think, uh, you know, you've got to set the clock even further back mm. uh, in, in the sense that the countries all have different languages. They're in different stages of economic development. There are different local and cultural norms. So in indeed, it, it's quite challenging, not just for building a digital bank, for, for anyone trying to enter uh, these set of countries, you'll find that actually it is not a common market of any kind. Yes. It's a collection of different countries, right? So, and and for anyone trying to build something, right, you want to try to prevent what I call the code from forking because uh, as each country will say, no, no, we are unique, right? We need this, we need this, and, you know, we are different. And therefore, over time, if you don't police this well, right, the code then tends to become so different that actually you have different sets of, a software within a country and that that depletes your ability to uh, invest yes 
because now you've got to invest in multiple versions rather than one version. So from the beginning, and this was part of that, that time we spent really designing, right? Uh, we knew that we wanted to prevent the code fault. So what we would have to do is to be very cognizant about making those changes. And, and it's a very fine balance, right? Because frankly, uh, if you don't live in that country, you don't know the norms. So I think yes. in my book, I explain that uh, in one country, the from and to, when you do a funds transfer, uh, you specify from and then to first. And in other countries, you specify to and from. So those are cultural yes. norms. You can't expect that, oh, we're going to go in and say, no, we're going to change it because everybody will be confused, right? And, and these norms are quite common in consumer businesses because they originated because of some legacy or, or some way of implementation long ago. Mm. And it has become a habit and you cannot change that habit. So uh, we had to be very cognizant of the local norms because if you're ignorant of those, then you do things that uh, may not be suitable, mm -hmm. may be of a lower standard than what the country already is used to. At the same time, if you listen to everybody and you know people are, always saying that my, my particular situation is unique. So I need different things, right? Then you're going to end up very quickly with very different versions of the software. Yeah. So we had a process whereby you had to make your case. Uh, and and the, the, the thing about this was that you had to finally balance listening, right? Listening to really understand and say, hey, is this, is this one of those situations where we need to uh, make that change because it's necessitated by the regulation, local norms, payment systems, whatever, you know, in terms of justification. Or, no, this is just something that has been a paradigm and it's time that we break that paradigm. So yeah. we set up that mechanism so that we would have to listen very intent. And we, you know, we didn't always get it right, right? Because sometimes in that process, we didn't get it right and you have to quickly learn from that and fix it. Uh, but that that challenge process, I think, challenge and listen process is very important yeah. uh, to ensure that you make just the right uh, changes that allow you to be successful and try and keep the difference in the code to a, a, a small enough amount so that the majority, you know, 80, 85% of the code is common. And anyone doing anything is just not in the digital space, right? Anyone trying to build a platform that's going to cut uh, across countries, you need to uh, be very cognizant of that. Yes. You, you state in the book that banking, certainly digital banking, but banking more generally is not really about products anymore. It's more about price competitiveness and tailored benefits and moving from cross-selling to engagement and what you refer to as a, as a total customer experience. And yes. I've been having a lot of conversations recently on with others on the experience economy and customer experience and one thing I think a lot about when it comes to total customer experience is how far can an experience go digitally? You know, what is the extent of the ability and where is the line between a positive and, a, and an almost an uncomfortable customer experience? At what point do you know too much about the customer and actually turn them off? Where are the limits of the digital experience? Um, I think number one, uh... And, and this has to be said, right, that certainly the pandemic has accelerated uh, the adoption, right, because mm -hmm. mobility has been affected and therefore you've had to do a lot more things 
uh, digitally. Uh, I think the, the, the two are always going to coexist, but the percentage probably of online is going to rise. Yeah. I don't think you have a situation where it's, you know, ever going to be one or the other. Um, and in terms of uh, the adoption rate, right, I think it would have to also be based on the nature of what we're talking about, right? So if you look at travel uh, and you think of travel over the past 30, 40 years, right? I mean, it's really transformed, yeah. right? Today, you, you hardly, most people hardly use a travel agent, right? You can really uh, package it together because everything's been disaggregated. Yes. But at the same time, you look at something like, like clothes, right? Uh, it's still fairly difficult right uh, uh because you may need to try uh goes mm -hmm. on and look at whether it fits you uh you know and and then if you if it doesn't you need to return it i say there is a lot of friction and cost that's going to be introduced there so based on the nature of the uh uh proposition and the the actual items and values being exchanged i mean it's obvious that those that do not require physical goods, right? Uh, for example, Airbnb is simply matching uh, someone's vacation home uh, or home that's not being used with someone who's visiting. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's actually no physical movement of goods. I mean, those have clearly been transformed. Yeah. And then when you look at retail, I, I think a, a lot of times where you require comparison, you want to know which one to buy. Uh, it's a, a one item in an SKU that's hard to find. Mm -hmm. like for example, if you're trying to find a replacement screw for something that has dropped out, I mean, it's going to be hard to go to the store, yes. right? Because you might not find that particular. So uh, by looking at the nature, I think you clearly can see that it's bifurcated now into those that clearly the experience has become such that it's easier to find something very obscure on Amazon, let's say, than going to the store. Yes. To look for it, right. And then there are still those items that uh, you need to try it out. You need to yeah. see how it looks, right? Uh, jewelry, clothes, things that you place on your body. And those, you know, uh, you would still uh, need to uh, you know, probably go to a store. Yes. And then uh, finally, those those items where you need a lot of information, right? You're doing research. In the past, you would go to the store and talk to the uh, uh, salesperson. Hopefully, you find a knowledgeable salesperson. But now you can do so much of it. Mm -hmm. And because those form factors tend to be fixed, right? You don't have to try them out. Um, and if you're not the first time user, let's say you're buying another camera, then you could just make that purchase. So I think... Um, these are all the things that are for, uh, you know, the, the continued growth yes. uh, of using online uh, from a B2C perspective. And similarly in B2B, right, there's a lot of business processes that can be made um, more automated. For example, I give a very simple one that, that, that I think it, it can make a very big impact, right? For a small business, uh, you often need to figure out who has paid you. Mm -hmm. what we call reconciliation, right? Because, because it's not clear who has paid you. So if you can generate a unique account number, right? It, it's a, probably a longer and a digital and a unique account number. Then you know who paid you because 
uh, once the money goes in that unique account number, you know the payment is done. So you can actually automate reconciliation mm -hmm. that way. So in both B2B and B2C, I think there's a lot uh, of uh, situations where digital is now superior yes. in solving some of the experience issues. Uh, and the final thing I would say is that, you know, it still goes down and, and often people uh, um, get this kind of mixed up, right? I, 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 to be, make it very simple, I can break all the transformation into two types, right? There's probably more nuance than that, but for the simplicity of the example, one is back to what I was saying, that there's no big thing. It's a whole bunch of small things and that tends to be experience-led. Mm -hmm. And then there are those things that uh, you're going to focus on one or two things that can dramatically alter the performance curve. Yes. The example I like to use to explain because it's so simple is really if you think of uh, the time where the bicycle was invented, right? And when the bicycle uh, first came out, all you needed to do was focus on the two wheels, the pedals, and the steering, right? The first bicycles mm -hmm. didn't have brakes, didn't have uh, the gears, probably had didn't have that comfortable a seat. All those could wait because the performance difference between walking and taking a Riding a bicycle is five times. Yeah. So if you can find that kind of improvement, likely that kind of improvement is coming from a technology breakthrough yes. of some kind or business model breakthrough of some kind to produce that 5x difference, right? Then you can have a very narrow focus, right? On that particular one or two. And then this is where the word minimum viable product comes from, right? You, mm -hmm. you just focus on those most essential details that produce that breakthrough, but if you can't find that, then you know that it's a different kind of transformation. You need to pay attention to very minute details and how those details interact with each other to produce the overall experience. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to explore the minimum viable product um, point with you a little bit more because I, I was really fascinated in your book when you said digital banks don't operate on an MVP, minimum viable product but rather they have to operate on a very high NPS, a net promoter score. Yes. And that really got me thinking because I wanted to understand where the nuance was here because the latter, the NPS, relies on a more than a decent MVP in order to achieve that net promoter score. So talk me through what it means to start with the thinking of achieving an NPS rather than an MVP first. How does that change the thinking of developing a digital bank? So it goes back to fundamentally, um, what kind of business are you in? Mm -hmm. and, and what change are you trying to make, right? So uh, in, in the playbook, which I published subsequent to driving digital transformation, uh, there is uh, one of the illustrations that uh, tries to dimension this so if you imagine the vertical axis being, are there a few things you can do that can really transform your business? Mm -hmm. Versus no, there isn't, right? That you have to do many things. And the other axis is really uh, adoption. How easy to adopt, right? Uh, drinking mm -hmm. coffee from another vendor is fairly easy, right? There's not much um, to prevent or on much you have to relearn. Mm -hmm. But actually banking, if you, if you look at it from a context of do people really want to switch back, actually the answer is no, right? They don't really want to switch because firstly, banking isn't an activity that results in the end goal, right? It, it facilitates the end goal, yes. right? 
Um, and therefore, you don't really want to change it unnecessarily. And also in many cases, there are certain things you've really gotten used to, like how the app, how to use the app, and also the all the existing banking payments associated with your account. So from that context, uh, therefore, banking doesn't have one or two things, but require a significant uh, adaptation right, to a new experience. Yeah. So understanding those four quadrants will be important. right? You, you might have examples of businesses where, yes, there is one or two things you can do to drastically improve uh, your performance curve. And, uh, you know, the way uh, mRNA uh, vaccines are produced, right? Uh, you know, that is a dramatic improvement uh, in the way that vaccines used to be, you know, grown, incubated, tested, and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So if you have such a circumstance, then you can opt to say, yeah, let's focus on the minimum that will produce that breakthrough. Yes. If you don't, then you say, okay, I don't have that kind of breakthrough characteristic uh, in my industry, and therefore I've got to focus on the experience. And, and they're both equally experienced, uh, uh, sorry, they're both equally difficult yes. in their own way, because in the, in the MVP uh, scenario, it's really driven by some kind of development, right? Some kind of technological development, some kind of approach that's different, right? Uh, and therefore there's, there's science, there's probably R&D involved. And therefore you need to have depth, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have people that really understand uh, how the science or the new business model can be applied. On the other hand, the complexity of the experience business uh, is not really in any one technological solution or breakthrough. It's in how everything comes together, right? Yeah. Uh, and how everything plugs together like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. and you don't have any pieces that are out of place. So they are, they are equally difficult for different reasons. And then, of course, finally, you have the business that have both, right? They have both, uh, you know, a breakthrough uh, in EV cars, for example, right? They have a breakthrough in the sense uh, of the, uh, especially now, right, with, uh, you know, energy prices the way they are. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the breakthrough, in terms of the cost per mile, uh, and not ju just in the price, but also the emission, the carbon footprint. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there's a big adoption curve, right? Because if you uh, uh, don't do anything about the adoption curve in terms of infrastructure or new development, you may have to wait 45 minutes versus the five, 10 minutes you wait to fuel a car. Mm. And so there are those businesses that you have to consider both. And so I think that that's the answer to the starting point, right? Understanding the nature of your business and the kind of, transformation and change that you want to take place. Yes. Rushing without thinking that through doesn't help because then you get things mixed up. Yeah. And unfortunately today, the world is complex and getting more complex. And unfortunately, the, one of the negative effects of the uh, widespread availability of knowledge in the internet is that sometimes it can be very confusing. You, you can't tell what's real, what's fake anymore yeah. right because there's so much out there i think we are um sometimes 
awash with information but devoid of knowledge i think when yes we, uh, yeah exactly exactly um Part of the success with the launch and the growth of Tomorrow Digital Bank was your ability and your team's ability to walk that delicate line between the independence of thinking and structure needed to be agile and innovative as a team developing a digital bank, but at the same time being able to, when required, lean on and learn from and embrace the heritage of the parent company of UOB Bank. That's a notoriously difficult balancing act, ensuring you are neither in an innovation silo nor restricted by tradition. How did, how did you manage that? Uh, I think it was very challenging. Yeah. Um, uh, it helped that we had certain rules that we had put in place from the beginning. So for example, anything that we uh, created, uh, we would not keep it. Uh, it would be there on the shelf for anyone that you know feels that uh, you know, that can help them. Mm -hmm. Of course, the reality of the situation, sometimes people don't realize that uh, the solution is often tailored to the problem. Yes. If your problem is different, your, your segment is different, you you will have to pay, right, to alter it. So it's not that, you know, you you, you can use it without any change, mm -hmm. but at least the step function investment uh, that has been spent, you may not need to invest in that basic, but you still need to, potentially invest in that tailoring yes, of yes. the solution to your particular problem. So, so that was uh, something that we had put in uh, from the beginning and that helped to uh, then the understanding that uh, these investments really belong to the parent right? and that anybody could later utilize this if, uh, if the situation was appropriate. Mm -hmm. Uh, the the second one, which I think was harder to get across, and and many organizations are probably, uh, you know, facing the same situation, right? It's very hard to measure, uh, the, uh, startup unit within an incumbent on profit straight away. Yeah. Especially if there's a big mismatch between the cost, the timing of the cost you put in, and when you get the revenue out. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, and, and startups understand this much better because in a startup, you have to look at uh, contribution first, right? Because if you contribute, your marginal contribution is negative, meaning every additional customer, your revenue from that customer is much lower than your cost to acquire, your cost to maintain. Mm -hmm. and you keep making losses, right? And there's no way you can recover your fixed costs if your marginal contribution is not positive. Yeah. And therefore, instead of uh, wasting time to think about fixed cost recovery for a startup unit within an, a large organization, right? The first thing should be, you know, when would this uh, entity be able to generate positive marginal contribution? Mm -hmm. And and then because it's all connected, after you generate positive let's say it's just $1 of positive contribution, right? Then you've got to multiply by, let's say the number of customers. And if you multiply it by a million customers, $1, then you have a million dollars. But if your fixed cost is 10 million, then clearly you need a lot more customers. And that's where you also need to be cognizant that your fixed cost cannot be, keep increasing or cannot be disproportionate your ability to defray because if you knew for example that 
actually there's only uh, two million customers mm-hmm. right in your in your pool uh, for this particular offering then you know that spending 10 million if your contribution was only ever going to be a dollar you yeah. it, it's not a viable model and therefore you have to go and rethink right how you're going to uh, deliver this so so there are these differences uh, that are important to recognize upfront uh, and to accept that these are you know different ways of doing business for an incumbent company that has been doing the probably the relatively uh, uh, large businesses the same way for many years versus uh, a startup that really needs to look at things you know very differently and, and these will always be difficult conversations within an incumbent company that a startup doesn't have to deal with yeah and and therefore hence back to my point right uh that you can't really imitate a startup environment in a big organization unless it's truly spun off and totally separate uh, but then it becomes kind of a startup hmm. so you've raised a really interesting point in the minute in the middle of that answer and you state in your book that, with a few notable exceptions, most digital banks remain unprofitable, as, you, as you've just stated as well. The perception of the digital banking market and the challenger banking market, as it's called, is, is that the banking market is opening up. But in fact, if the, the business model in the short to medium term is clearly unsustainable or, or needs the support of a large investor, a large um, bank or platform, whatever it happens to be, and is there a paradox at the heart of this that actually that the market isn't really opening up because it's still only limited to a certain select group of banks or investors with very deep pockets because of the, the challenge with the sustainability of the commercial model in the short to medium term? Yes, I think one of the things that perhaps um, people who haven't worked in banking before they don't realize is that there's a very large mismatch of cost versus revenue. Yeah. Right. And, and that is exactly the point that you know you, you're kind of raising. And when you look at uh, those that have been successful, right? I think there are two patterns emerge. One is that it's the true uh, bottom of the pyramid attack that is truly disruptive. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in this sense, there's also something a lot of confusion about what is disruption, right? Yeah. You cannot be disruptive if you are uh, uh, going after customers that your competitors also value significantly. So if you look at right hailing, right hailing goes after customers that the taxi companies also regard as their mainstay. And once that's the case, the uh, incumbents are going to fight tooth and nail to fight you off. But if you are serving a true bottom of the pyramid, like let's say a new new bank uh, in South America, then the incumbents are saying, no, we, we are not cut out to serve the unbanked. Mm-hmm. We don't have the cost structure, right? So we are going to seed that market to them. Yeah. And so one set of uh, digital banks that have been successful are those that are truly serving the bottom of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are serving the bottom of the pyramid. Once, you, once you're serving the bottom of the pyramid, uh, they need to have uh, operating costs that are very low. Yes. So if you look at uh, my bank and... Uh, WeBank in China, uh, they're looking at operating costs of a dollar 
US. And that's why they can give a hundred US dollar loans. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so if you the traditional bank say, no, no, we are not going to compete there. Those are not our customers. So they see their market. But the interesting thing is that because these industries have a technological core, right? You can apply that technological core to other segments. Yeah. And therefore, your low operating costs can then move up to a bank client, the mass market. And therefore, your ability to offer such good experience at such low cost eventually becomes unbeatable. And, and so that's one model that has succeeded and, and the likes of uh, Nubank, MyBank, WeBank, and any bank, I think, that is operating in a market where there is a significant uh, number of um unbanked customers, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one path to success. The other path to success is uh, a little more difficult in the sense that you've got to inherit from your uh, parent uh, company or investors. And, and if you look at uh, Kakao uh, in uh, South Korea, mm-hmm. it's both a combination of the very strong genes inherited from the parent cacao talk, as well as I think a great design that was able to distance itself from the rest of the uh, banks in South Korea in the mobile space. And the combination of those two very strong uh, genes that were passed down, right, enabled that to succeed very quickly. Outside of that, uh, most of the rest of the models have struggled. So it raises an interesting point from my from my perspective. Uh, those examples you've given are, are brilliant examples, and they're operating reasonably successfully in a in a moderate or a reasonably buoyant economic market. And what we've seen, to use a comparative example here in the UK and I'm sure elsewhere, over the last nine to twelve months in the energy market, the domestic energy sector, is a a number of small players that have gone bust because they they're commercial model was hedging energy prices and energy yes. prices have shot up and they yes. haven't been able to sustain it. They haven't had the funds and the resources. Yeah. So to apply that back to the to the banking sector, if we experienced another banking crisis like we did in 2008, 2009, does this mean a bonfire of the vanities for the digital banking sector? Because the model is only sustainable under normal, whatever normal looks like, but under normal conditions. Uh, I think that you need deep pockets. Yeah. If you don't have one of those two characteristics that I mentioned, right? you are targeting the right segment uh, from a bottom-to-peer perspective because they are unserved. Uh, and you, you therefore, if you have the ability to serve the unserved well, you are left alone. Yes. Nobody's challenging you, right? But you need to have the business model that can handle the economics, right? Lending 100 uh, US dollars. Um, so outside of those two examples I've given, I think it's, uh, relatively tougher. So you need deep pockets in the sense that it might be a five-year journey before you get substantive share. Yes. And I think each country is different because banking is, uh, less of a global business, more of a local business. There are local norms, there's local regulations, there are local payment systems. It's all regulated, you know, usually uh, country by country. So in that sense, 
it's also hard to expand the way you could uh, with a true global digital business like you know Google or Airbnb and the likes mm -hmm. of that, right? So without even talking about having a crisis need, needing to happen, right? Uh, you already got some fundamental uh, uh, things that you need to consider about the business model. How long and what's your risk appetite, right? So are you okay if uh, it needs investment for five years? Mm -hmm. But the, the problem with this is that if you are uh, a major bank in a country and there are competitors that come in and make it, it's very hard to respond after 10 years because yes. they would have uh, such a, a, they would have perfected the model, right? They would have a very high experience at a very low cost. And once it's embedded, it's very hard for the incumbents to challenge that model. And so for the incumbents, you're also setting up a unit to defend against that. And in countries where you want to expand, you are really the using that model to attack. Mm -hmm. But there are many nuances you need to consider based on you know, what I've just mentioned. So I would say that it's not just about uh, thinking of you know, if, if some eventuality that's unexpected occur. I think even if the eventuality didn't occur, you would have the, 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 the situation. It's just that now I think not only in banking, but also in uh, the fintech industry, yes. in the side industry, uh, interest rates have gone up for the first time in many years. Yeah. And when interest rates go up, then investors start to think that, you know, should I put money in a startup that has a more questionable proposition and business model? Because now I can earn uh, this ambient rate of return already, right? Without taking that risk. And therefore, uh, the funding uh, begins to tighten. And when the funding begins to tighten, then obviously it is the companies with very strong, very clear propositions, balanced with the ability to make money that win now in the end. Yeah. I'd like to ask you, just before we sort of wind up the conversation, a, a business question rather than a technology or, or a um, right. transformational question. The cultural foundations that are needed for digital transformation are critical for employees, for leaders, for customers, for stakeholders to see digital transformation through the lens of opportunity, not through challenge. So not something to wade through, but actually something to embrace and utilize. Yes. How do we foster cultures of innovation and fosters um, cultures that, that see digital transformation as opportunity, not challenge? Uh, I would say it's very much in, in, the, in the leadership to create that environment. Uh, you need to create an environment that's that's learning oriented, that's growth oriented. Uh, you need to reassure people about the ambiguity. If you, in a way, it is it is quite interesting because if you can't handle the uncertainty ambiguity, and you're always rushing to try and then pin down an answer, you're likely to get it wrong. Yes. So part of being successful in uh, business transformation, digital transformation, is really being able to hold the ambiguity, the uncertainty, right? At the same time, uh, trying to uh, understand what it is you don't know, right? And being comfortable about it. And at the same time, learning, growing, and eventually over time, uh, being able to actually come up with a solution. 
that solve the problem. So this is difficult. This is difficult for, for people uh, who are not used to the ambiguity, not used to the uncertainty, uh, because there will be days where you wonder, hey, is this the right direction? Yes. Are we headed the right way? You know, should we go back? Right? Uh, and, and sometimes when you're vested in a certain direction, then you want to double down, right? And that suddenly makes it worse. So there's a lot of these uh, ambiguities that you have to contend with. Uh, there's also the need to uh, really foster creativity. And I think the important thing about creativity is that you can't let hierarchy decide certain things, right? The best uh, ideas uh, may not necessarily just come from the top. But at the same time, you have to have a process of challenge because if you don't challenge stuff, then all kinds of nutty ideas also float to the top. So this balance of uh, uh, being able to create a, uh, an environment that has challenge, that even the most senior person to justify why should we do it this way, right, to everybody else. Uh, and at the same time, showing support, right, that, you know, yeah, we will get some things wrong. Yes. Right? We just should not get the most obvious things wrong. <laughs> and we will learn from, from that and, you know, we will apply that learning and get even better. So that getting that challenge and support correct, I think that's absolutely critical to uh, fostering, you know, creativity and innovation in any organization. So there's, there's a lot of different cultural elements that, that need to be imbued to create an environment uh, which which comes more naturally to startups right? yes. because you have an idea, uh, you have a great, great narrative and you're all uh, working towards achieving that ambition, that passion. Uh, it's even harder when you think about it in a big organization where you have to uh, generally contend with people, a wider diversity of people who might be more uh, stuck in their ways. So that challenge is even uh, higher in terms of magnitude. Dennis, I think that's a great piece of advice upon which to uh, to end our discussion today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I really yeah. enjoyed your book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what Dennis does, I've included his link in the notes that accompany this podcast. And I've also included a link where you can go and purchase his brilliant book. If you've enjoyed the conversation with Dennis today, or any of the other the new PNL conversations or episodes, then please do take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. So I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening, and have a great day.